Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we discuss the strange, the bizarre, and the bewildering films of the VHS era. Tonight, we are talking about the 1977 low-budget killer child slash zombie. Mm, I don't know. This is a this is basically a glorified student film. But anyway, The Child, also known as Kill and Go Hide. Awful title. Uh, my name is Luke, and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, you may be aware that global birth rates have been on the decline since the mid-60s. The number of children born in our modern times is less than half of what it was in the 50s. We could blame public accessibility to higher education. We could point to the ever-evolving field of readily accessible and advanced contraceptives. We could say that newer generations don't want to sire children into a world of never-ending war, a world that is cooking itself alive like an extreme immune system response to the disease of unchecked corporate greed, which values profits above all else. Or, as of this broadcast, you can find 1977's The Child on YouTube, archive.org, or just about anywhere for free, really. And please take my word for it that you especially do not want to pay for this one. And then you, like us, can ultimately conclude that there's probably a significant population of prospective parents who have only to observe shitty kids like the one from this film before deciding it's probably best to put the survival of the species on the back burner and just own two dogs and a cat. Did you just link declining birth rates to the release of the child? Well, it does go down every year. True. I wonder if that correlates to the number of people who watch this film every year. I mean, perhaps there's a correlation with all of these evil children films. That that reminds me, one day we are going to do this ultra obscure uh, VHS oddity called Whose Child Am I? about in vitro fertilization. Imagine like an after school special about the evils and the potential dramatic, well, potential melodrama of uh in vitro fertilization um but anyway i definitely disagree uh, about buying this film it it's crazy rare but it's not crazy expensive to get on vhs at least um but i'm a fan of this so before we get into the actual movie i thought that i'd talk a little bit about like the behind the scenes story of this film um, there's a lot of really valuable material, again, in Stephen Thrower's book, Nightmare USA, that I discussed last week. So anyway, how does that sound? That sounds great. I'm ready to hear about this book. This movie was directed by someone named Robert Vasconian. I think that's how you pronounce that. And it was produced by his partner, Robert Dadashian. And they were fresh out of film school. And they were starting of their own film company called Panorama Films. And what they wanted to do was produce documentaries for corporate training, like corporate training films. But <laughs> apparently the market there was oversaturated and they realized that if they wanted to be successful, then they'd need to break into 
like the box office market instead. And Night of the Living Dead had just been released. And they saw it and they were like, we can do this. We can make a, a cheap zombie movie that will launch our careers or more importantly, the career of our company. And so they went about trying to make the child. They had little to no money and no ability to pay anyone up front. In fact, the overall cost of this movie was only $30,000, which is like insane, right? That still sounds like too much. I don't know. I think I, I might be crazy, but I think that Night of the Living Dead was something like 200000 So comparatively, like they're working with very little. But they had no script, so they put an ad in Hollywood Reporter magazine asking for horror scripts. And they got a submission from someone named Ralph Lucas, who ended up writing this screenplay. And they said, like, we can't pay you up front, but we'll give you a percentage of the proceeds. And so he agreed. And then they put another ad out looking for actors. And made the same deal. Like, we can't pay you, but we'll give you a percentage of the profits. Did the same thing with music. Actually, the music, I take that back. I don't remember how they got connected with the musicians, but there's two, there's two people who worked on the musical score for this one. One is... Well, IMDb credits the sole responsibility of the musical score on the shoulders of one Rob Wallace. Okay, so that's not quite true. So Rob Wallace is responsible for the sort of um, dramatic piano music here. But he's joined by Mike Quattro on synthesizers. And Mike Quattro is a name that some people might know if they're into progressive or psychedelic rock. He released a few progressive rock albums in the 70s that are pretty decent and not too rare. I'm sure he's been sampled by somebody. Anyway, so they make kind of an odd pair, but I actually ultimately really like the music in this film. What did you think of it? I was not a fan. In really? Fact, I would say that the powerful classical piano that we get in the opening credits really gives you the wrong impression about what's to come. How, like, what impression did it give you? It, like that it was going to be a good film. Oh, see, I think this is a good film. All right. So are you saying that you think the music is too elevated for the film? Well, I certainly think the piano is way better than anything else in this film. But the rest of the music is, uh, it's, it's very sketchy. Like, all right, I don't know who that other guy is, but I, I bothered to look up Rob Wallace. And he basically worked on The Child and then did nothing until like the early 90s, where his career then transitioned into video game music, where he worked on an awful Mortal Kombat clone for the 3DO, which I have unfortunately played. And he was also responsible for all the music in like Nintendo's early educational titles, like Mario is Missing and Mario's Early Years for PC. He then took like a five-year break, worked on an awful late, late 90s horror film, and then dropped off the grid. 
Yeah, so I don't think that I don't think that he contributed the bulk of what I like about this score. I think that's thanks to Mike Quattro. And I think this this score has a really interesting combination of well here. I'm I'm gonna read I can't find this um this quote I wanted to read. Oh well, I can't find it. But um the the director was not a fan of the score. He was convinced to keep the score by Robert Novak, who ultimately became, or Harry Novak, who ultimately became the producer. Like he was the the one who liked the film and bought the rights to it. And Harry Novak, I know best for releasing a lot of like really bizarre semi-erotic films but if you look up his imdb credits like they're endless this guy did so much but to go back to the the story behind the film so it was shot around 1973 and 74 in la and the bulk of the movie all of the interiors were shot in a house that the building the the city was going to tear down to build like low-cost public housing and the filmmakers convinced them to let them shoot there and then some of the film was shot in oil fields and i guess that's all the exterior shots towards the end where they're like going through those buildings and things that like i don't even know what they're supposed to be yeah Um, awful chase scene well i like the chase scene it's just it's the the building that like the building that they end up in at the end of the film i couldn't tell you what that building is supposed to be shack i guess but why is it there storage (laughs) anyway the the special effects were done by like a friend of a friend who also did all the zombie makeup and the cinematographer was done by someone named well his last name is alavi and he was from Iran, and they thought that he had sort of an avant-garde style that matched what they wanted to do with the film. So ultimately, the director was not entirely happy with the film. Uh, he basically said, I knew we didn't have enough money to make a good film. But uh, for the most part, this film gets a positive reaction. Like there's a lot of critics now who are big fans of it. And so overall, like in retrospect, Viscanian seems, at least if this interview is to be, be believed, seems to to be happy and proud of the work, which I think is fitting. I, I think this is a pretty good film for being really low budget. I was not aware at the time of watching this film that it was a a first attempt at filmmaking, but obviously in retrospect, all the signs are there. So do you... Did you get a similar vibe between this and Messiah of Evil? No, absolutely none. Not at all. No, wow. no comparison. You you are comparing a a like big juicy like co like wagyu steak burger on pretzel bun with organic garden fresh vegetables. You are comparing that to a crystal burger found in a parking lot in the rain and there's a bite taken out of it see i think that these two films would make a great double feature i think they both capture sort of uh 
a dreamlike quality following a, a young female protagonist through an unfamiliar, strange world uh, in which there's almost a magical realism or dream logic going on. Uh, a lot of, to me, the the cinematography is similar. The the visuals are similar. I I see a I see a big connect. These two films. As soon as I saw the child, I was like, "This is a lot like Messiah of Evil." Like it, the, the connection just hit me immediately. Strong disagree. All right. Well, let me. Oh, here's the here's the quote that I was looking for about the score. Stephen Thrower says, "The score by Rob Wallace and synth rocker Michael Quattro nurtures the child's strange aura from beginning to end." Wallace's lush, overly dramatic piano theme sounds freakish next to Quattro's ancient synthesizer with its primitive swoops and snorts. The effect is beyond bizarre, a bodice-ripping melodrama being invaded by creeping psychosis. I thought that that was a great description. So I want to, uh, before we get started, I just want to talk a moment about the the vhs release which, which is really bizarre so if i i can't with releases like this i'm always really curious about the history behind it so for example this vhs was put out by monterey home video which like they did a ton of cool big box releases i think they put out the grim reaper which was the american title for anthropophagus um, but anyway, this VHS, though, does not say Monterey. It has a, a sticker on it that says distributed by Monterey. It says it's distributed by World of Horror. And then it has sort of a generic box cover with the child artwork in the very center. And then there's a sticker on the front that says kill and go hide previously released as the child. So I have so many questions. One, like, why wasn't this just released as a Monterey video? Why the world of horror presents thing? Why is the title not built into the artwork? Why is it a like post-market sticker? Why did they change the title? And if you were going to change the title, why also include the previous title? Like usually when video companies changed titles, it was like a rights issue or it was to, you know, hoodwink people into renting a movie they'd already seen or to differentiate themselves from some other company that had released it. But if you put the old title on there, that kind of defeats all those purposes. So anyway, I think this is a really cool VHS, but if anybody knows like any of those answers or or has a place that they can point me where I could learn about like the releases, the distribution um, with some of these like low and no budget companies, um, I'd be really interested. So reach out. So are there actual physical stickers on the box? Yeah. Are you brave enough to see what's underneath? Well, I don't think there's anything underneath. But no, I don't want to remove them. They're like the title and stuff. Yeah, no, I'm just asking. All right. What um, it, I, I did see that there were there are two cuts of this film, and the only difference is that one of them was 
uh, stretched out like for time. Like the runtime is longer because the movie plays at a slightly slower rate. Yeah, I did see that. And um, I can't help but feel that maybe we got stuck with it because there were a lot of scenes that dragged in this film. All right, we'll, we'll get to there. Before we play the trailer, let me read you the back of the box and, and see what you think. It says, a terrifying tale of the supernatural mental abilities of a young girl, Rosalie, a little girl of 11, lives with her widowed father and older brother on an isolated farm. She pays nightly visits to her mother's grave, where she communicates and commands the ghoul-like creatures that haunt the surrounding woods. Into this bizarre setting comes beautiful young Elysianne, who has been hired as housekeeper and governess of Rosalie. She has no hint of the bizarre things that are about to happen to everyone involved with the innocent-looking child. What follows after Elysianne's arrival is a barrage of terror that builds up to a chilling climax in which Len and Elysianne face the ghouls in a thrilling, bloody confrontation. Wow. Do you think that's a fitting description? No, not at all. Let me ask you this. Do you think that, like, I know you don't like this movie, but could a good movie have been made with this plot? Man, I think that's a good question for just about any plot. But I think the baby proves that you can take a really strange screenplay and make a fun, like, interesting, and more importantly, entertaining film out of it. So if you can do that with a screenplay like the baby, you certainly could do it with this. One other thing that caught my attention is on the back of the box, it has a list of the actors. And first of all, I don't even remember a gardener. Do you remember a gardener character? I believe the gardener is near the beginning of the film where our pro tag is threatened by the dog. Do you remember this? She's walking yeah. through the woods. The dog comes out. Someone yeah. grabs the leash of the dog. I think that is the gardener. Well, whoever it is, is played by an actor. Uh, this name is really curious to me. The name is Slauson Bing Zhang. Okay, that is clearly an Asian name. And the only Asian actor is uh, the guy in the trailer. The, the actual, an actual trailer, not what we're about to play, who gets uh, murdered by the child. The guy who's stealing the jewelry? Yes. All right, well, maybe that he's supposed to be a gardener then. Yeah, I guess he is. All right, let's play the trailer, and then we'll get into the movie. The face of an angel. The heart of a killer. The power of the devil. I don't have to tell you anything. I'm going to work for them. I'm going to take care of Rosalie Norton. The death of parents when a child is rather young, it leaves you feeling so alone. I have friends. They do favors for me. What kind of favors? You'll find out. Stay right here. I'll be right back. 
All right, who's in here? <laughs> Rosalie, stop it! They're gonna come and hurt you both! Hurt you bad! <laughs> the child wants to play hide and go kill. Who's in here? Her power is unearthly. You go away, Rosalie! Go away and leave me alone! Her acts, monstrous. Her secret, electrifying, of unspeakable evil. The Child, a terrifying thriller. Do you think that movie had enough thunder in it? <laughs> I love all the thunder in this movie. Uh, I also wanted to draw attention to the fact the only music you hear in the trailer is the awesome piano soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, I like, I like the musical score, but I think it fits the movie. So we see the opening credits and they're like dark sky and foggy forest and there's a storm and immediately we know what this entire film is going to look like so what did you think of the look of the film hmm. um, very very foggy yeah that's true but like did you think that that was effective or not uh i think it was a little excessive i don't know what they were using to create it if they had a smoke machine or what but <laughs> I, I, all I'm saying is, personally, I want to be buried in, in the non-smoking section at the cemetery when I go out. I, I think it, I mean, I think it's fog machines, but I, I like it. I think it adds to the, the dreamlike nature of the film. It makes it feel less like reality, which I think is the only way to really appreciate this movie. Well, dreamlike is definitely something I got from Messiah of Evil, but I was not under that impression at all throughout any point of this film all right well i'll keep pointing out as we go like things that i think contribute to that so we start with a little girl who finds a cat in a graveyard and then she hands it to somebody who i think is a, is a zombie who is going to eat it but we can't really see clearly right well it's definitely not a human, but like, yeah, you know, ghoul sacrifices, the, you know, that's like the loophole for no kill shelters to get rid of excess cats. Well, later we see, which I think is really funny, like a drawing that the little girl has done of a group of zombies eating cats. Like there's a cat in a pot and one's holding a cat. I thought it was funny. It's like, you know, if zombies were out. But in, you know, elsewhere, we see a, a young woman. This is Elysianne, whose name, this is a terrible name. It is. It is an awful name. I hated it every time I heard it. I was like, I don't even know how to write this down. Elysianne. Anyway, her car breaks down or she like swerves off the road. And th this is a good 
time to point out because we hear our first dialogue that this movie was is entirely dubbed and one thing I, I read an interview with the director where he said that when the film was shown and I'm really curious how common this is so if someone knows reach out to me apparently they played two different film reels so they played a film reel of the movie and a film reel of the dialogue and I don't know if that was a common practice or if it was something unique to this film, but the dubbing in this film makes me really appreciate the dubbing in all the Italian films we watch. <laughs> Why is that? It, I, I'm not sure if it's the dubbing or the actual dialogue writing, but all of the conversation in this film sounds really unnatural, but not in a dreamlike eerie stylistic way more like the cast just recorded their lines solo on uh on like an answering machine tape and called it a day no see i agree but i think that i do like it i think that makes the movie more effective because it makes it stranger and there's also a thing where like a lot of these actors are I mean, I don't know if they're not good actors or if their acting style just does not fit the material. But, for example, the character of Mrs. Whitfield, she was apparently she had done stage acting, but she'd never acted in a movie before. And the director said they had a really hard time getting her to to act for a camera as opposed to act for an audience where like you would exaggerate your facial expressions and you would read your lines in a different way. And I think that that makes her seem crazy, which I appreciate. I think both of the, the elderly actors have a weird aura about them. But again, I don't know if it's their mannerisms or if it's the dubbing, but there's something that puts me off like some uncanny valley reaction all right i can see that well in this scene there's a black dog that runs at uh alicianne wait, and wait, 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 we're skipping what are we uh, skipping a blue barrel rolled in front of her car and she drove it off the road all right so after that there's a, a a black dog runs at her and this dog is owned by mrs whitfield who we were just talking about and Alicia explains that she's going to the Norton house where she has been hired as a governess or nanny for this little girl. And so naturally, Mrs. Whitfield invites her back to her house for tea. And so they go back and they're at Mrs. Whitfield's house. And this is the scene where Mrs. Whitfield's acting. And this is an actress named Ruth Ballin who I had explained was like a stage actor. This is the scene where her dialogue is especially weird and stilted. And the first time I saw this movie, this is the scene that made me really like the movie. I was like, this actress is bizarre as hell. Just her mannerisms are weird, but I can see how that could be off-putting as well. Like, you know, it's fine to have off-putting as a stylistic choice, right? Like they're, there are, there are actors who behave strangely in say like um, david lynch films right and that really add to the ambiance of the film did not get that feel at all from these performances it, like it really just felt like someone somewhere was messing up and 
it was killing the vibe. See, to, to me, a film like this, it does not feel intentional the way David Lynch feels intentional. It feels like accidental circumstances and in some cases lack of skill or maybe mismatched skill like people whose skills did not necessarily match the skills of everyone else on set but i think that that creates an accidental weirdness that i'm a fan of that i enjoy it makes it an oddity like a novelty if you will like when i watch this movie i'm like well i certainly haven't seen a movie like this before and, and i enjoy that I also want to mention that much like the acting is strange, the dubbing is strange, the editing is also strange. We sort of glossed over it, but when Elysian, um is attacked by the dog, someone grabs the leash, keeping the dog from breaching her. And within a split second, old woman who is completely different from the character that grabs the leash shows up in frame and starts talking yeah that Wait, that really did confuse me that was so jarring i had to to back it up and watch it one more time to make sure i knew what happened but that editing is like that style happens throughout this entire film yeah it, it there are moments where i think that contributes to the dreamlike nature of the film but in this scene that you're describing it just confused me so it, Mrs. Whitfield has a line I like. Uh, she seems to not be a fan of the Nordens. And she tells Elysianne to consider my home a safe port when the Norden seas get too stormy. Which is like a really stupid sort of pretentious like film school metaphor. But I like the fact that it's coming out of this character's mouth. Like <laughs> I appreciated it. She says she used to keep borders there. And I like this line, too. Uh, she says the woods made them too nervous that something was out there. And that Rosalie, the little girl that Elysianne has been hired to take care of, used to play tricks to scare them off. And that she regards the woods as her own private property. We also learned that Rosalie's mother spent most of her life in mental institutions and that Rosalie has always been strange. She wants to call Mr. Norton to come pick up Elysianne, but Elysianne says she'd rather walk. And she asks Mrs. Whitfield if there are animals. And Mrs. Whitfield says, there is something. I hear them calling to one another at night. But she doesn't say any more. See, all of this makes me feel as if I am not in a real place. It makes me feel like I'm entering a dream or something that does not exist in reality. And that's really effective. What did you think of this scene? Um, I think it's more like uh, the, the world building isn't quite there. Here, Here is the vague possible reasoning for why our villain is is going to be the way she is i don't know just exposition I, I i wasn't set up in any way oh yeah there's little to no exposition in this film uh we're just kind of expected to accept things as they happen yeah this is about the only time anything's really explained yeah see it sounds like you and i agree on all the content of the movie it just didn't work for you 
No, it did not. And it does work for me. So to get to the Norton house from Mrs. Whitfield's house, you have to walk through the woods and the cemetery. And as she walks, we hear the music, but it's actually quieter than the wind and like the natural sounds of the forest. And to me, this creates the same kind of unease that we talked about last week with like the sounds of the ocean and the natural crickets and things that accompany Arletty as she walks around. It, it's it's really similar effect for me. This This is the time where the piano starts to take a back seat in the, in the soundtrack. And we start to get, we, we go from beautiful grand piano to like electronic, like chiptune Game Boy ambiance as she's walking through the woods. Yeah, that's the Mike Quattro work. Yeah, it, it sounds like maybe not particularly this scene, but it escalates throughout the film where there are scenes that literally sound like someone just slapped three songs on top of each other and called it a day. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure this was the music used to, to torture prisoners at Abu Ghraib. I don't know. See, uh, this is what Steven Thrower describes as a bodice ripping combination, which is a really strange adjective, but I do like it. Um, there's also weird uh, camera work here. So in addition to sort of the still cams, uh, the director apparently did all the handheld camera work in this movie. And it's all from weird angles, like diagonal or up from a corner or down from the ground, like really strange angles, like at Alicia's feet. To me, this this makes me uneasy. It puts me on edge. Like it makes me feel again like something unnatural is happening. Did that stand out to you? Yeah, but it felt like they were just trying to pad out what would otherwise be a boring scene of her walking through the woods. Okay. Out of curiosity, like, did you watch this movie during the day, like late at night? Like, uh, it was like probably 1030. See, I think there are certain movies that are more effective, like when you're tired and like really late at night, like not just because they're quote unquote midnight movies, but just because you're in a different state of mind, I guess being like on certain substances would achieve that same goal. The first time I watched this movie, I watched it really late at night and I was really tired and I wasn't sure if I was seeing things right. And it really contributed to the film. This time, this was the second time I watched it today and I watched it in the middle of the day and it was not as effective. I still enjoyed it, but it didn't have the same effect as the first time. No, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure um, hallucinogens will make just about any movie better. We see something run by her, and then there's a dead wildcat that's been torn apart. There's fog everywhere, and we start to see glimpses of people around the cemetery, like a hand here, a face behind a bush there, but nothing clear. Um, could you tell they were zombies at this point? Uh, not exactly, but since you told me that this film was going to be similar to Messiah of Evil, which it isn't, um, I figured there were probably going to be some form of undead or zombie laying around. And it's a cemetery, right? 
and we saw the little girl hand a cat off to something. So it's going to be a zombie, a ghoul, a ghast, whatever. Just open the D&D monster manual and flip and flip the pages for undead and pick one. I mean, yeah, the movie never describes them as zombies either. Um, but that's just how what I'm going to call them. This reminds me of like the beginnings of Halloween where we catch a glimpse of Michael Myers like here and there, but only for a second. And we have to be we have to wonder, just like Jamie Lee Curtis, like, did I see that? Like, that's one of my favorite things about Halloween. And I think this is doing the same thing. I I like that we don't get a clear glimpse of anything until late in the film. Well, once you do get the clear glimpse, you're going to be disappointed. Oh, well, let's let's wait for that. But I think they look cool. So Alicia gets to the Norden house and goes inside. And this is the darkest house ever. Not just because my VHS tape was dark. Like this family just doesn't use lights. Yeah, our our pro tag is looking for the next plot point after almost forcibly entering her way into this house. And it sounds like a dungeon from Zelda on the NES. Yeah, so I don't I don't know if this is supposed to be um like a red herring or not, but we meet Mr. Norden and he says that the people in the cemetery are tramps like vagrants, which which I did not remotely believe, but I'm not sure if we're supposed to or not. Um, He says, I suppose Whitfield told you a lot of stuff about us, but she didn't. And Alicia-Ann's like, nope. Um, We also meet Len, who is Norden's son. And Mr. Norden says, I hope you're not a nervous woman. I hate nervous women. And I assume this is because his wife had like psychiatric problems. So you I, said, go ahead. I was going to say, I didn't read into it like that, but that's probably a good point. Yeah. So they, they tell her where her room is, but they don't show her <laughs> and they don't introduce her to Rosalie, who she has been hired to take care of, which seems really weird. But I don't know if this is supposed to explain it or not, but Lynn says they're not used to having people around and she'll have to try to understand them. So Norden here, Rosalie's father, how old do you think he'd be? I thought he was maybe like 60. Like, I'm just saying his son is a grown-ass man and this girl is, what, 11? 11 years old? Well, I thought the son was probably like mid-20s and the daughter was like 11. I mean, guys can have children at old ages. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I guess by the time I'm done saying this sentence, I my body will have produced about 9,000 sperm. So I don't think that really changes as you get older. No, like, and this movie is supposed to take place in the 1930s where it would have been common for a woman to have children at a much younger age. So I just imagined that Rosalie's mother had her when she was very young. Then she was apparently in and out of psychiatric institutions. And then by the time she got out, she was ready to have another one. <laughs> oh, those were the good old days. That That's just my guess. I mean, I, I think this is also where... Man, I started getting the red. I started seeing the red flags where the movie had nothing going on, 
but they started overlaying foreboding music over like the most mundane stuff like the old man complaining about things you know you have the camera shots in the woods that were like off center to try to hide the fact that she's just walking through the woods and nothing else is really happening i see i think that's effective Mm. um but since Elysianne is not introduced to Rosalie, she just goes to Rosalie's room by herself. And Rosalie's in bed, and there's a picture of her mother next to the bed, and she says, that's my mother. She had beautiful hair. They say I have hair just like hers. Oh, I have a note here that says the mother's hair is not lovely. And it doesn't really look like Rosalie's. <laughs> Right? Rosalie has, like, long blonde hair, and the woman in the picture has, like, short curly hair. Oh, it doesn't make sense. Just like a dream. But I thought that the the fact that Rosalie thinks she looks like her mother is supposed to indicate to us that her and her mother have more in common. Like, they probably have their powers in common. They probably have their psychiatric problems in common. That's how I interpreted that. So did you like how Rosalie was sleeping in this room with the light on? Well, I, I thought that she was just laying awake waiting for uh, Elysianne to, to show up. Oh, man, her eyes were closed. She was faking. Yeah, I, I, I thought she was. And we also know that she gets up at night and goes out into the cemetery. So it doesn't surprise me that she's not really asleep. And her her dad does not seem to be the most uh, observant father. But she asks she asks Elysianne where her mother and father is, and uh, Elysianne says that they died. And all one other thing during the scene, Elysianne tells Rosalie that she can call her Lise, and I was like, yes, I can start writing Lise in my notes instead of Elysianne. Then no one calls her lease for the rest of the movie. Yep. <laughs> so I wasn't actually helped out. I mean, we could say it if it'll make you feel better. Uh, we'll see. I'll try. So then we switch to Mrs. Whitfield's house and the camera keeps zooming through the woods, kind of like Evil Dead style, but slow. And there's different music playing for inside of the house versus outside of the house which gives the impression that there's like something in the woods that we can't see that's supposed to be ominous. This movie was made way before Evil Dead. Do you think that this should get credit? I am not the authority to make that judgment. I don't have enough of a film background to say this is the origin of the POV ground evil entity shot. <laughs> I don't know. I know Evil Dead gets a lot of credit for establishing that. And and don't get me wrong. It's much more effective in Evil Dead. This movie is nowhere near as good as Evil Dead. Um, oh. oh, thank you. I'm but, glad you said that. But just like we talked about Blood and Lace, like establishing the POV killer shot at the beginning, this is the first movie chronologically that I've seen do this, which I think is kind of cool. Oh, man. So do we... Do we go take the trophy away from Sam Raimi and go find this guy, give him his proper award? Uh, may, I mean, this movie, apparently this movie was only released in like three states, but it did <laughs> relatively well. Like it made money. Oh, so the actors actually got paid. No, they did not. 
Oh. Um, so that's a, that's a side story that's told in the Stephen Thrower book. But when Harry Novak, the ultimate distributor, purchased the rights to the movie, the director and producer team did not really read the contract. And it ended up being that Harry Novak got almost exclusive rights to the profits. And so really no one else involved in the movie saw any money. Wow. Yeah. So Mrs. Whitfield is looking for her dog because it's barking and howling. It sounds like it's being hurt, but she can't find it. Um, it's not on its leash. And so she's out looking for it. And, and then it's the next day. Oh, Alicianne wants to have a Halloween party for Rosalie. But Rosalie says there's not any other kids around. And when we do get to the Halloween party, there really is no one there. It's just <laughs> Rosalie and Alicianne. I mean, at least she was set up for that. There was no preconception that kids were actually going to be there. Yeah, I mean, uh, Rosalie says that there are other kids outside, but we don't see them. And I'm wondering if that's just because they didn't have the actors to be in it or if there's, there really aren't any other kids and it's just Rosalie. This is the first time where we get to see Lise actually do the job she was paid to do, which was like take care of the kid and I guess take care of uh, breakfast. Well, this is only the first day that she's there. Eh, I guess. But there's a scene where uh, the, 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 the child asks her something and instead Lisa's is just like yo eat your grapefruit and then we'll play anagrams i'm like yo that sounds like a threat <laughs> right and then and then rosalie is like i hate grapefruit and and she's mad that rosalie is going horseback riding with len she wants her to stay and so her expression of anger is that she stares at a bottle of milk and then the top pops off I mean, if this is supposed to show her telekinetic ability or her like fury, it's kind of a pitiful expression of fury. I know, at least crush the bottle. <laughs> right. No, the, the top just pops off. <laughs> she's drawing a picture of the family and she's like drawing X's through people. Do you think these are the people who are like now on her bad side? Oh, yeah. This is definitely a hit list. This this is a hit list made with the finesse of the kind of artwork you would take from your child and, and put on the fridge. Right. So we never actually see the horseback riding scene, but we do get a flashback to Rosalie's mother's funeral. And this is the foggiest funeral ever. God, this right? memory is so echoey. Yeah, all the dialogue in it is echoed and honestly most of it i couldn't even understand <laughs> so you basically hear the priest's entire eulogy but i know during this scene they close the casket at some point but it's so foggy that it looks like the pallbearers are just dumping the entire coffin haphazardly into the open grave there's that and then i didn't understand a word of that sermon or eulogy or whatever it is like the echo just made it impossible for me. I didn't really care. It makes it seem more like a, a nightmare to me than a memory. 
But the only thing I really did understand in this scene is that as Mrs. Whitfield is leaving, she tells Mr. Norton that he's a hypocrite for pretending to feel sorry. And, and I took this as he was glad when his wife died because of her psychiatric problems. There's a point in this scene, which is already a flashback in thought, where a character has a voiceover of thoughts in their head. So do you think that if you were to keep going through this like echoception, that it would just keep getting echoier and echoier as, as it goes on? I mean, for logical consistency, that would make sense. <laughs> no. Right. So we see we see a dinner scene, and I guess Rosalie's not mad about the horseback riding anymore because she starts by saying that Alicianne doesn't have a mother either, and she's a lot nicer than those other old ladies. So I guess this is like previous go previous governesses that were hired. She was not a fan of. They're probably offered up to the ghouls, but we don't really get to hear about them. Yeah, we don't know. But um, Alicianne is gonna sh wants to show Rosalie how to make donuts, and Rosalie is like donuts. And then Lynn says, "Don't you want to make a good wife for your husband one day, and like be able to make donuts for him?" <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm looking for. So is this like a? Does this film have underlying feminist themes? Like, is is Rosalie really striking out against the patriarchy? I mean, if this film is supposed to be empowering, then I think Lise would be at least a little more useful when we get to the climax. Oh, God, yes. All right, we will get there. During this scene, she asks, is dinner all right? And Mr. Norton just shrugs. As if... <laughs> But but then I really like so this is a nursing that I really like. Mr. Norton tells a story about how there were a bunch of Boy Scouts who were camping around there, and they broke off a tr a twig of oleander to stir their stew, and some of the sap, which is poisonous, got in the food and poisoned them all, and they all died. And he says they were damn little fools. They died like flies. And then he laughs. And Rosalie laughs too. Like they're both laughing hysterically at this. Yeah. And then the casual sadist humor is accented with what else? Like Game Boy music to set the scene. <laughs> See, this, this, this scene is weird to me because I don't want to say that Mr. Norton is a sympathetic character, but he does not seem to share like the insanity that Rosalie and apparently her mother have. But here he, he is like sadistically laughing about these Boy Scouts being killed. It just gives the whole family a very um, an air of, I don't know, uh, depravity or, you know, it's like being in a John Waters movie for for. A minute. I guess. I think this is just supposed to establish that their family is supposed to be kind of psychopathic, but Len is definitely not in on it. Yeah, no, Len's the only one who's like not laughing hysterically about this. But he puts up with it. He doesn't like say anything. Mrs. Whitfield shows up during the dinner looking for her dog, and she says he's not that kind of dog just to wander away. Rosalie says she hasn't seen her seen the dog but she's smirking like 
like she had something to do with it. And Mrs. Whitfield says that she's just like her mom. And, and then Rosalie says, now she'll be all alone and like smirks and is really happy that Mrs. Whitfield will be by herself. So it's obvious at this point that like Rosalie had something to do with the dog disappearing, right? Yes. So we hear from Lynn that his mom was robbed and killed by tramps. At least that's what we're told. Do you think that's what really happened to her? Or do you think we're supposed to suspect that Rosalie did something? No, I, I think that is actually what happened. And right. I think that the unseen, undead monster menace is probably the reanimated bodies of those tramps. Uh, but then why would Rosalie consider them friends? Dead friends, best friends? I don't know. It's it's definitely ambiguous, right? Like, we, we are not ever told for sure. No, this, this script is not solid. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm happy with. Just like I said, I was happy with the unclear ending of the movie last week. Like, I'm fine with not knowing something. Lynn says that his mother used to read books about the mind, and she said that the mind was a secret world that no one had explored yet. Does that suggest that she too was telekinetic? Yes, I assumed the, the mom had uh, powers. And then we also hear another statement, kind of like Mrs. Whitfield's earlier in the movie. They hear a noise, like an animal noise. And he says, there's animals in these woods, but no one has ever seen them. When people hear that noise, they lock their doors. And then I, they calmly sit in the meadow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's silly, but like, I love this. I love this idea of there being animals that no one has seen. It's like, I mean, it's kind of like Bigfoot stories, I guess, but it adds an air of mystery to the film that I like. I like the idea, but the setup isn't there. And nobody's reacting like you should in a situation like that. And you can make the argument that maybe this family has been out in the woods for so long that this is no longer a special occurrence for them, but they still don't act like that these things are a threat or that these things are, a are anything to worry about. There's, there's something missing with the setup here. All right, that's fair. I really like this next scene. We see Mrs. Whitfield in her house and like the camera is way up in the corner of the room looking down at her and she's right in the middle of the room with like a spotlight on her on a chair and she's reading. It's almost like we're seeing a stage play, right? Like yeah. it does not look like a real room. You mentioned earlier her actress was big on, you know, starring in stage plays. So I just yeah. figured now in retrospect that this is this is like a tribute or an homage or whatever to that style of um, entertainment. Also, uh, this director had another credit where he starred as himself in a documentary about the Los Angeles stage acting scene. So he probably is still active with that, with that, um, with that crowd. Uh, I can actually tell you, based on the thrower book, this was his last foray into show business. Trying to remember what he does now. Hang on, and I'll 
All right. So according to the thrower book, Viscanion, the director, would still like to direct again, but he's never been able to. Um, Right now, he's in the nightclub business. He owns a nightclub and manages it. So uh, but he is he has dreams of making another movie and and. It's going to be a suspense thriller that takes place underwater. It's a survival game between some recreational wreck divers as they come face to face with a group of killer divers inside a sunken vessel. I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he could he could play around with all his crazy camera angles. I mean, underwater it wouldn't really matter. So back to this movie, right? Something like attacks Mrs. Whitfield from behind a curtain, but we don't really see what it is. She runs to the phone and tries to call for help, but there's no signal. And when she goes outside to her car, she runs into Rosalie. And Rosalie says, I brought my friends with me tonight. They want to meet you. And Mrs. Whitfield is scared. She runs back in the house. And this might be the only case aside from Night of the Living Dead, where someone goes into the basement for safety, which turns out to be a terrible idea. No, in fact, if she stayed out of the basement, she probably would have been fine. Yeah, somehow all the zombies are down in the basement. But we get another shot that perhaps was was stolen by Evil Dead, because as she's going down the basement steps, a hand reaches from under the steps and grabs her ankle and trips her. And the previously, I thought the first film that had done that shot was Evil Dead. Hmm. Yeah. But then are we think... Are you building a case here? I Maybe. I, I wonder if Sam Raimi's seen this. But I really love this shot. We get a bunch of hands that just drag her into the darkness, and we see we hear her screaming. And then we see a shot of her, and she's all bloody. Half her face is ripped open, and she has an eye missing. I think this is like I think the makeup here is pretty effective. I think the whole scene is pretty effective. I love that we don't actually see much, just the hands pulling her into the shadows. Yeah, it's all right. Um, you know, you mentioned that she's wearing this like prosthetic where she's missing an eyeball, right? right? I'm pretty sure this is used on every single corpse in this entire film. Yeah, there is a strange um, consistency where every corpse is missing an eye. Yeah, it's probably because the lack of budget and they likely didn't have anybody that was very like experienced in doing like on-scene gore effects. So they probably were just using what they had. I hadn't thought about that. I thought maybe the zombies just had like a thing for eyes, like some untold story that we weren't given, but like the zombies needed left eyes for some reason. My eye, my (laughs) eye. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we, we covered this entire scene in maybe what, two, three minutes. This house scene actually drags on for what's probably realistically 10 minutes, but feels like 20. She wanders throughout the house for so long with nothing happening. There are some scenes in this movie that dragged for me, but this was not one of them. 
I, I was I was roped into this scene. No, oh, I I think this is a motif that that gets only stronger from here out. Like overly drawn out, uh, like build up scenes. Like, is that an acceptable artistic trademark for you? It, it, does it make it more dreamlike? <laughs> um, no. But in scenes where like the suspense works for me, then the the drawn out scene just builds the suspense. There are like in this scene, I think that works. But there are other scenes like. At the scene at the end where they're in that building, I said I didn't know what it is. Like, I think that scene's kind of boring. So it just varies depending on the scene, like whether it's effective or not to me. Like, there's a scene earlier in the film where the music gets, like, more suspenseful and starts to reach, like, the, the, the crescendo, and then the payoff is just the man raking leaves. And I feel like that is the perfect scene to represent this film i don't know see david lynch does that too though where like he'll have really ominous music and something just totally normal is happening and it gives the the scene a a feeling of unease even though there is ostensibly nothing to feel uneasy about like i like that anyway we're gonna since we're going to skip around a little bit anyway, um, since you think the scenes drag on. Um, but the next one I want to talk about is where Rosalie is drawing her teddy bear. And she tells Elysianne that she draws all her friends. Maybe I'll draw you one day. And she says it very menacing. Yeah, you, that's a threat to be put on the hit list. What do you think of this little girl's performance? I'm not a fan. <laughs> I don't think she's really good or bad. She doesn't communicate like real evil the way that little girl in Macabre does. But I don't oh, think she's no. bad. That, that, they are not in the same category at all. <laughs> yeah. Elysianne wants to see the drawings of her other friends, but Rosalie says that those aren't so good. And Elysianne says, I don't think I'd like your friends too much, uh, especially if you have to meet them in the cemetery at night. And Rosalie responds by saying, I just go to visit my mother. And Elysianne says, your mother is gone. And then Rosalie laughs hysterically. And this laughter goes on. Talk about things dragging on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it would have been effective if she just like laughed maniacally for, you know, a second. This is almost like a minute of laughter. <laughs> At least it feels that way. Oh, so Elysianne goes searching for the drawings in Rosalie's room, and there's just like a human skull on the dresser. Like, I don't know. I found that odd. It's very out of sync with the rest of the room. Um, oh, it doesn't seem out of place for this family. No, she d she finds the the drawings, and there's a picture of the the hand that tripped Mrs. Whitfield. There's the drawing of the mom's funeral with everyone crossed out. And then there's the, the picture I talked about earlier with the group of zombies eating cats <laughs> that I thought was really funny. So during the aforementioned um, Halloween party scene, there's a jack lantern that Elysianne keeps trying to blow out, but it keeps relighting. I thought this was kind of cool. This scene was so bad that Lee started chugging moonshine afterwards to escape the film but it's too late 
Like we're at the halfway point. Well, the 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 jack lantern won't it can't be blown out, and it seems to have eyes that are not carved that are just there. I actually thought it was suitably creepy. I I, I liked the jack lantern. All right, so there's a scene where Rosalie catches someone going through her mom's jewelry box, and she tells him, "You killed my mother." And he says, no, your mother was crazy. And then someone shoots him. I thought it was Rosalie who shot him with the shotgun. But that's a pretty big shotgun. I think according to the script, this is supposed to be one of the tramps that killed her mom. And him having her jewelry, well, presumably having her jewelry, was supposed to be evidence of that. And I assumed that she used her psychic powers or telekinetic powers to pick up the shotgun and blast him with it. But I suppose it could have been a zombie that walked in there and picked it up. Yeah. You definitely don't see it though. You just see the shotgun barrel going towards him. This is your gardener man, by the way, based yeah. on the, the name. Yeah. His name is Slauson. <laughs> so there's, there's several scenes where like, uh, Rosalie's dad and Alicianne confront her about like what she's doing in the cemetery. And she, she says, uh, she tells her dad, you'll find out they're going to come and hurt you both hurt you bad. I don't have to listen to you anymore. Old man. You heard this line in the trailer. I, I like this line. That line was delivered so bad. Hurt you bad. I don't know. It sounds like what a bratty little kid would say. Uh, just the delivery sounds so forced. All right, so the next scene I want to talk about is there's a dream sequence where Alicianne is dancing with Len in the graveyard, but then Len becomes a scarecrow. And I think this is actually a really creepy-looking scarecrow. What do you think about this? I think most scarecrows, you know, have kind of that creepy vibe because they have to. They have to scare the crows away. Yeah, but I think this one is particularly effective. Like, I think, like, low-budget scarecrows look creepier than high-budget scarecrows because they're actually man-made. Like, you can actually see all the straw sticking in them and everything. Yeah, it's the hand-stitching that really sets them apart. Yeah, so there's a there's a bunch of, like, scary stuff that happens here once she wakes up. I, I'm going to kind of skip ahead. Um, unless you have anything you want to focus on. Um, oh, go ahead. We we see Mr. Norton. He has his eye ripped out, you know, just like Mrs. Everyone Whitfield else. did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so now we start a super long chase scene. Alicianne. Alicianne? Is that, that name? Lise uh, and, and Lynn get in the truck to leave. And... They're eventually attacked by zombies, and this scene is very reminiscent of the scene in Night of the Living Dead where Barbara is in the car and the zombies are beating on it and shaking it around. These zombies can use tools, though. Like, they pick things up to bash at the windows with. Uh, that kind of sets them apart. So what, here's uh, a question. Before yeah. Len crashes the car, something flies through the windshield. Yeah. Do you think that one of the zombies tossed something through the window or was this like a psychic bullet from from the child i wasn't sure but i i i think that it, i didn't see anything so i think it must be a psychic bullet 
because that really begs the question why doesn't rosalie just crush everyone with her gene gray powers and get it over with yeah i mean maybe she hasn't fully developed her powers yet mm. she's only 11 that's true all right so as they're running through this is where it, i think this must have been filmed in uh the oil fields and i don't know what any of this is like they're going through some kind of gate but it doesn't lead anywhere they're going over like uh like walkways wood walkways but they don't go anywhere there's right. one point where alicia's foot falls through a spot on the floor and gets tangled in a bunch of barbed wire I'm like, why is that there? All right. So I, I feel like there are some very big things we need to mention about, about this scene. Okay. First, what pitiful excuse of a zombie stops an attack when its arm is rolled up in a car window? Well, I mean, these are never really called zombies. And as I pointed out last week, like the rules of zombiedom were still being established at this point. Maybe these zombies can feel pain. I mean, I also want to mention that now that you can see these guys in full in and day, daylight, they look like um, they keep jumping out at our heroes like they're uh, the putties from the Power Rangers, like the early seasons of the Power Rangers. Yeah, some of, talking about. some of those jump scenes look really dumb, and but some of them are kind of effective, I think. And finally, the only reason they're able to get out of the car is because they figure out the Ghouls do not like the sound of the car horn. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Like, you can see their reaction. They're like, I'm dead, not deaf, you dicks. Yeah, the but, zombies actually cover their ears. But, you know, this is a huge plot hole, because why are they repelled by this car horn, but not the grating soundtrack that's overlapped this entire scene? Uh, maybe zombies can only hear at certain frequencies. <sighs> All right. So to pick up, Len struggles with a fence door that could easily be climbed around using the side railing, but instead there's a solid minute dedicated to forcing it open. Yeah. What? Uh, shoot. I lost my train of thought. Lise gets her foot tangled in barbed wire for two minutes, yet somehow escapes with no injuries. Yeah, I just, I don't know why that barbed wire is there. Oh, I was going to ask. What other movies have you seen where zombies can use weapons? I feel like there has to be something, but I can't quite think about it. I think some of the then some of the dudes in Messiah of Evil pick up some stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's an Italian film. I'm trying to remember the title of it. I mean, nowadays it's really a 50-50 between is the zombie a product of a virus or a bacteria or is it a necromancer using reanimation magic because if it's the magic then it's okay they can pick up tools and weapons but if it's a virus you, you know you're down to your base instincts i mean the one i think of is there's an italian film called nightmare city or my vhs i think is called city of the walking dead by umberto lenzi and uh they use all kinds of weapons in that one, like even guns. It's like a completely different kind of zombie. Huh. But that's another one where like it was early. Um, like that movie came out in like the early 80s. So I guess the zombie tropes were pretty established by then. Maybe not in Italy. 
Anyhow, okay, it, what about, like, can they use them in the 28 Days Later movies? No, and technically they're not zombies. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I agree, but we could, we could definitely get into a debate there. But I mean, to be fair, I would classify it in the same... Uh, maybe we could say it's a subgenre, but yeah, I, I let's let's stick to the child. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. All right. So basically, they're the Elysian and Lynn board themselves up in this mysterious shack, and this is a scene I think is boring. Like <laughs> this siege lasts a very long time, and <laughs> and Elysian is useless. During all of this, she absolutely rem- useless. <laughs> she reminds me of Barbara in Night of the Living Dead, just like hysterical screaming, but not helping remotely. But Len I do th- finds a shotgun in perfect condition amongst all the rust and rotten wood. <laughs> yep, <laughs> uh, and takes a very long time to load it. There is a three-minute scene dedicated to boarding a door shut but then it turns out the zombies just had to pull the door instead of pushing it the whole time hey we never said zombies were intelligent (laughs) they can master throwing rocks doors are a little more complicated how long is this scene do you want me to look it up i don't know it's long but there so what i do think is effective during the scene is i do think there's actually some good like scares where the zombies jump out at Elysian. And I also think the gore is effective here. Like we, Lynn gets killed and we see half of his face eaten away and it looks really cool. I think the gore is well done. This scene is 20 minutes long. Yeah. This scene's boring. 20 minutes long. Yeah. Lynn gets grabbed by the zombie ghoul ghasts that are trying to pull him through the floor and he like calmly explains to Lise like step by step how to save him and she still fails because she does nothing as he's dragged in well it eventually somebody else is trying to get in and Elysian attacks them with an axe or a shovel I don't remember which it's an axe but it turns out it's Rosalie. So she kills Rosalie, and once she dies, the zombies stop. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Why do you think Rosalie walked into the shack? I don't know. See, I wondered if maybe, like, like I don't know that Rosalie wanted Elysianne to die. There were points where she said, like, oh, Elysianne's my friend. But then there were other points where she said, like, they're going to hurt you, hurt you both. So I don't know. I thought maybe she was looking for them, but it doesn't really make much sense. Yeah. Although I appreciate the artistic style of her hit list, logistically, it makes no sense. She basically blames her entire family for her mother's death, despite the established fact that she was actually killed in the graveyard by a bunch of homeless people. Well, I think she just senses that like Lynn and her dad weren't weren't sad. Like they were kind of relieved that her mother died. And and they are hiring someone to take care of her, even though 
it seems like they're perfectly capable of doing so. Like, they just do not like these crazy bitches in their house. Hmm. I and, didn't consider that. I just figured they were terrible caregivers themselves, so they rather push it onto somebody else. Like, the, the dad makes it sound like he has so much other shit going on that he just doesn't have time for her, but... All, all he does is sit in the house. Yeah, we don't see... It, it, neither of them seems to have a job or to do anything. Nobody in this movie has any sort of... I think one flaw of the movie Yes, is, the one flaw, yeah. Well, one of them. I'll get, to, <laughs> I'll get to the others in my review, but one of them is that I don't feel sympathetic about any of these characters because none of them are fleshed out. Like none of them have any interests or personality or in anything that defines them as characters. Like they could be cardboard cutouts. And I don't think this is the fault of the actors. I think this is a huge weakness in the screenplay. Yeah, no, the actors are all fine, honestly. I mean, none of them are amazing, but I think they're fine. Like we, right. just, we just went in on lease for being useless in this scene. Um, through this end and it would have been all right if she was fleshed out as like a real character with like dreams and ambitions and and some kind of backstory to like really make her into a human being that has like emotional faults but instead she's just like a cardboard cutout that then just starts screaming at the end and mostly does nothing until it's too late yeah all right, so we're starting to review. Why don't you give your final thoughts and a rating out of four? I mean, I, I, I noticed this was the director's only film before we started this, and I thought it was because he might have been blacklisted from the industry. <laughs> but I'm glad your book cleared that up. Um, yeah, I think Cafe Flesh is a better film than this. Uh, no, I, I, I did not care for this film. Um, for for anyone who's not a regular viewer, Luke and I are remote recording from two completely different states. But Luke, if you were here in my office with me, I could take off my beige cargo shorts. And if you were to study my ass, I mean really study it, you would notice a flimsy brown piece of floss wispily floating in the cool wind of my oscillating fan. That is how little a shit I give about this film. The best thing I could say is that everyone seemed to show up to work on set. Half a star. Well, thank you for burning that image into my mind that I certainly didn't need. Um, but to stay on the film, so okay, here's the things I like about this film. I think that whether it's intentional or not, it creates a surreal, dreamlike feel. And it's a combination of the music, the weird camera angles, the stilted dialogue, the um, like roving cameras, the ambiguity uh, and lack of clarity of what's going on, the sort of strange character motivations like all of those things might be flaws but they might also be attempts at just being odd and unsettling and i'm sure it's a combination of the two but 
whether it's intentional or not, that works for me. And I really like movies like that. And that's where I see this film being similar to Messiah of Evil. I think that while that movie's better than this one and, and has more skill behind it than this one, they're both, I think, striving to create that sort of mood. And, and I really appreciate that. I like some of the acting here, even though it's bizarre. Like Mrs. Whitfield, it, that performance is is really strange and, and probably bad by like, you know, a normal metric, but I still enjoy it. Um, and not in a like so bad it's good way, but in a who came up with this and why is it so weird way? And I enjoy that feeling when I'm watching a movie. I also enjoy like in some ways looking at a film like this that's that was made with thirty thousand dollars it is i I evaluate it differently than looking at a movie that costs a hundred million dollars right like there's just it it's a totally different medium um just like shot on video movies are a totally different medium and I, i can appreciate it for that with that said it's very clear that this movie is just trying to tie together and replicate like Night of the Living Dead and The Omen and other movies from the time period that these guys wanted the same success. And so they're jamming elements together. There are definitely scenes that drag on too long. There's definitely a lack of three-dimensionality to the characters that make them uninteresting and unsympathetic. The last like 20 minutes of the movie, I could do without. Um, the chase scene and the siege of the, the shack does nothing for me. But all the scenes in the houses of dialogue, the scenes through the forest with the weird camera angles, the talk of creatures in the forest that no one's ever seen, I could live on that stuff. All that stuff is hugely enjoyable to me. So I think I'm going to give this two and a half stars. Oh, my God. That, that, is, that is too many. I almost gave it three. After the first time I saw it, I would have given it three. After, mean, after my second viewing, it's a two and a half. On one hand, I appreciate you balancing this rowboat because <laughs> I rocked it a lot. But I don't think it needs that much stabilization. No, I, I really do. Like, I'll, I'll watch this movie again. I, I sincerely like this movie. All right. It, for, for people who maybe watch these films after they listen to the episode for whatever reason, I, just make sure you're high as balls before you watch it. I can't imagine it being enjoyable any other way. Oh, well, I have watched it sober and enjoyed it fully. But... All right, so two notes about our podcast. One, I like episodes where you and I disagree on things. I think that it gives people a two different point of views. Um, and, and secondly, I think by now, people who are regular listeners know whose point of view they align more closely with. If you tend to agree with my feelings on movies, watch The Child. If you tend to agree with Leland, maybe you skip this one, <laughs> right? Like, use use what uh, what amount of our personality has been established as your barometer. With all that said, we have a special treat coming up next week that I hope 
Leland will enjoy as much as I do, but we will see. I can't predict his uh, opinion for the most part. Um, we're actually doing a twofer for you. We're going to watch the two Andy Warhol masterpieces, Frankenstein, a.k.a. Flesh for Frankenstein, and Dracula, a.k.a. Blood for Dracula. These are mostly Italian productions uh, directed by Paul Morrissey. It, I, I just saw that Flesh for Frankenstein is getting a 3D Blu-ray release by... Um, shoot, I can't remember what company is putting it out. Maybe Arrow? Maybe Severin? Anyway, you can look it up, but um, it, when you're watching it, keep that in mind that Frankenstein was filmed in 3D, and it will make some of the scenes make much more sense. But I love uh, both these movies, Frankenstein more than Dracula, but these were X-rated. They're borderline, like, softcore eroticism, but mixed with the wackiest performances and the weirdest interpretations of these stories. And I don't know if these films are good or so bad they're good or so weird they're good. I don't know, but I appreciate their weirdness so much. And we're not gonna really going to do a walkthrough because we're doing two movies, but I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. All right, and and you have never seen either of them, right, Leland? I vaguely remember something about sexualizing a spleen. Yeah, that that is certainly, or it's gallbladder. I can't remember As what. Some uh, not oft thought of organ. Yeah, um, these movies were made back to back, and so I think it makes sense for us to uh, discuss them back to back. Do you think we can keep it under two hours? Yeah, we will. Okay. We, we won't make this unbearable for people. So tune in next week. Both those movies, uh, you can definitely get on Blu-ray and DVD. The VHS tapes are not terribly expensive. I have the Video Gems releases, and I also have Japanese releases. And yeah, unfortunately, neither is in 3D. But soon, if you're a fan, you will have the opportunity. So consider this a celebration of the upcoming 3d high definition release of of frankenstein anyway all right so that's it for this week um if you are on instagram please give us a follow at video.store.nightmares uh, i post everything we do and um, please reach out and interact we would love to hear from you your suggestions your ideas your recommendations your criticisms, uh, and whatever platform you listen to us on, if you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would help us out as well. Uh, Leland, do you have any last words? Have we gotten any hate mail to read yet? No. Oh, well, in that case, thank you for your continued support. Yeah, like, I know people are listening because I can see on Podbeam that more and more people are listening every week, which we love you for. But yeah, I haven't gotten any hate mail. Which is a little disappointing. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, until we do um, and we can flesh out this segment with some hate mail, uh, that's it for this week. So everybody have a great week. Check out Andy Warhol's Frankenstein and Dracula and join us next week. 
Until then, goodbye.